Last time on the Cellcast, the animated series. Rough. Tiana. Tiana? <laughs> Not Tiana, it's Tiana. Anyway, I've learned that sometimes you just have to punch your way through. That's what I thought. <laughs> yeah. And uh, they tried that and it didn't work. No, they didn't. <laughs> if you remember the movie Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, mm. this is where Bill. This is the location where Bill and Ted die. Humans. Yeah, we're back to the original Klingons, and I prefer we stay there. <laughs> Why on earth did they let him into sick bed? I do want to point out the fact that, like, every time Rutherford, 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 which admittedly, that's probably, he's a, he's an engineer. He's not going to have good bedside manner. No, he's, he's very on the nose about things. Yeah, exactly. Oh, this corp war's doing this. He's like, oh, I need to do this. Be like, wait, those are dilithium burns? How are you still alive? <laughs> True. But no, they just throw him into sick bay because they need an excuse for the for the Cation to show up again. For the angry cat. Yeah. Which I'm fine with that. I actually like the angry cats. By the prophets. Cartoons. The animated frontier. These are the voyages of the Cellcast podcast. It's continuing mission to explore strange new cartoons, to seek out new animation styles and new creative storytelling methods, to boldly go where so few ever go again. To another episode of the Cellcast, the animated series. Joining me today is a man who—he uh, just has a thing for crystals. Jacob. Well, they are shiny after all. Mm-hmm. Why? Thank you. Like to introduce our co-host, a man. I just like to step people in the foot. Welcome, Drew. How are you doing, Jacob? Good, actually. Very well. All righty. We are reviewing today Star Trek Lower Deck Season One, Episode Three: Temporal Edict. Written by Dave Eilenfeld and David Wright, and directed by Bob Serez. Uh, In this episode, a new work protocol eliminating buffer time has the Lower Decks crew running ragged as they try to keep up with their tightened schedules. Uh, At the beginning of this, going into the trivia and Easter eggs for this episode... At the beginning, there's a musical recital, which is a reference, which happens a lot of times on both the original series and Next Generation. Mm-hmm. Boimler's songs, all being about his mother, might be reminiscent of uh, Data's poem, Ode to Spot. You know, his cat. Uh-huh. <laughs> the uh, Klingon Bird of Prey is the first time we've seen, we've seen that particular ship since Deep Space Nine ended. Oh, okay. We've not seen, gotten to see that ship since this, that point. Huh. The fact that the, you can hear what's going on in the... Uh, what do you call that room? The, the mess hall, essentially? Oh, yeah. On the bridge is a reference to how strange on Star Trek acoustics seem to be on a starship. Yeah, that was kind of weird. Yeah. Even outside the ship, you can hear it. Well, I mean, that's... Uh, that's a joke more than anything yeah. else because sound shouldn't work in space yeah. anyway and yet it has many, many times 
But especially on Star Trek. But uh, I'm assuming the Klingon is hearing it through the speakers that's on what the bridge. I, that's what I presume. On the view screen. Uh, Car- it mentions go- that they were on their way to Cardassia Prime for some peace negotiations. Uh-huh. Cardassia Prime is the homeworld of the Cardassians and was the capital plan of the Cardassian Union before it got annexed into the Dominion way back on Deep Space Nine. It's la- so the last time we actually even heard from Cardassia Prime was in the finale to it was in the series finale of Deep Space Nine What You Leave Behind which was five years prior to this show mm. canon uh, Freeman complains about learning a specific dance uh, for the uh, peace negotiations yeah. they were going to this is a reference to the Next Generation episode Big Goodbye where Picard had to learn a complicated greeting to pacify the Gerada Gerada yes okay. Uh, buffer time, as is referenced all throughout this episode, the first time I think, well, it's not the first time Star Trek has referenced the fact that there might be some incorrect terminology in how long it takes to do stuff. Yeah. Uh, it was first referenced and actually happening in Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock, where it's revealed that Scotty always multiplies his repair estimates by a factor of four. To which Scotty's reasoning is, of course, sir, how else could I keep my reputation as a medical worker? <laughs> That's right. Uh, Boimler, in, when he's in the uh, turbo lift mm-hmm. before Freeman walks in, is yeah. humming the theme to Star Trek the motion picture, which would be reused for Star Trek The Next Generation. Oh, okay. Just a few bars of it. Not enough. You can just barely make out that's what it is. Um, Boimler says he completed a Baron sweep of the warp nacelles, which is a reference to the TNG episode Starship Mine, which had this huge facility that had to sweep all of the Enterprise to do whatever this Bayron sweep is and required everyone to get off the ship. But that was 15 years prior to this movie, the okay. show. So they maybe either A, it. they only did it with the nacelles, or B, it just doesn't, it's not that big. A, it can be done more portably now. Hmm. It's hard to tell. Mm-hmm. The existence of Delta Shift implies that the Cerritos is on a four-shift rotation, which the Enterprise-D was on during its brief time, captained by... Uh, when it was captained by Captain Jellico uh, during the TNG episode Chain of Command. Normally, under Picard, there was only a three-shift schedule on the Enterprise-D. Hmm. Also, since I mentioned Chain of Command, I have to say, There are four lights! You don't get the joke. I know you don't. No, I don't. <laughs> but moving on. Boimler's song about purging seems to be reminiscent of Data's lifeform song from Star Trek Generations. Which, for those who don't know how that goes, life forms. You precious little life forms. Oh gosh, that! You pre- tiny little life forms. Where are you? Oh god. <laughs> uh, Ransom, the uh, first officer on this show. Mm-hmm. Uses Riker's stances all throughout this episode, such as sticking his leg up on something and leaning forward. Oh, yeah. I'm waiting to see him have to sit down in a chair and see if he reaches his leg all the way over the chair before he sits down, <laughs> like Riker had to do. Yeah. And we haven't seen him go through a door yet with just one shoulder first yet, but I bet you he's going to do that, too. Eventually. Uh, Ransom's away missions going wrong list 
mentions horned gorillas, which is a reference to the Mugato from Private Little War, the original series episode, Private Little Wars. Sentient Targs. Targs are Klingon pets we first see in Star Trek Three and uh, Star Trek The Next Generation, where no man has gone before. Mm. And spores that make you hook up with your best friend's sister. References the spores of Omicron Seti Three, which caused Spock to fall in love and ditch the Enterprise for a while in the episode This Side of Paradise. Wow, okay. Uh, disengaging the autopilot for no reason might be a reference to Next Generation's encounter at Farpoint where Picard instructs Riker to perform a manual docking sequence between the drive and saucer sections of the Enterprise. For no reason other than to say prove he can do it. Hmm. Okay. Um, on the original series episode, The Galileo 7, at least one crew member did die of a spear wound. Hmm. Okay. And uh, quite a number of Kirk's adventures had uh, rather large amounts of non-futuristic weaponry, such as in the episodes A Private Little War, The game, Games of Trixalon, The Savage Curtain, Bread and Circuses, and Day of the Dove. Hmm. Uh, Tindy asks, when Tindy asks, do we have that many decks when Rutherford says that Bay is on deck 26? Mm -hmm. That might be a reference to Star Trek V The Final Frontier where Spock, Bones, and McCoy rocket past far too many more decks than the Enterprise ever has. True. Not to mention in the wrong order. That is true. Uh, Freeman says the Enterprise multitasks all the time. At this point in the, in the franchise, as far as we know, Picard is still captaining the Enterprise E. He has not left it yet. The music during the fight scene on the planet is reminiscent of a mock time. Uh, the fight music from a mock time written by Sol Kaplan and Ger Gerald Fried. And also, uh, Ransom uses a lot of Kirk Fu in that fight. Yeah. I mean, a lot of Kirk Fu. <laughs> the, uh, at the very end, the far future classroom had a, Borg ch a freed Borg child. And Boimler's statue was depicted with one of the great birds of the galaxy, which is first mentioned in by Sulu in The Man Trap. But the great bird of the galaxy is a nickname that has been given to Star Trek creator Gene Roddenberry. Okay. And last but not least, the most meta reference in this show to date. Chief Miles O'Brien being the, mo the truly one of Starfleet's greatest officers. Now, if I remember correctly... Do you know who O'Brien is, is my first question. I remember... You did not laugh at this. No. I, I did. I, I, I kind of understood, be like, he's you know he's been in a lot. <laughs> okay, so let me explain. Okay. Chief Miles O'Brien, played by Colm Meany... Yeah. Uh, ...originally appeared, while not named this, in the very first episode of Star Trek The Next Generation. Hmm. Uh, where he was a... Uh, the con officer. Mm -hmm. uh, he would later go on to be the transporter chief throughout most of next generation until season six, where he had moved to go be the chief engineer on start on a space station, deep space nine. Yeah. Where he would remain until the end of that series. As far as we know, we do not know where he has been since then, but here's the thing. He is not an, a Starfleet officer. Chief is not a, uh, Starfleet officer position. That is a essentially a, a, a non-commissioned officer rank. Huh. Which means Chief Miles O'Brien is the most famous, quote-unquote, lower decks character in all of Star Trek. 
Okay. Which then. is why they say he's obviously the most uh, famous, greatest Starfleet officer who ever lived. Chief Miles O'Brien. Because he's greater than Boimler, who was no one's going to remember past this show, probably. <laughs> if you've never read the comic, if you're into Star Trek and you've never read the comic Chief O'Brien at work, give it a shot. It is the stupidest thing you've ever read. <laughs> Apparently right now they're doing something with Wesley Crusher, which is also hilarious. Mm. Wait till he shows up, I'm guessing. Anyway, <laughs> so now that we've reached the end of all that, what is your impressions of this episode, Jacob? <laughs> Oh, too much to do and what? Not enough time uh, at very, all. <laughs> that is very normal. That is very normal. Agreed. But I, I think our captain kind of went overboard with it on this one. <laughs> yeah, just 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 a little bit. Just just mm-hmm. what was her her explanation was that be like, oh, we're the laughing stock of the Federation. Yeah, she says the ship is full of a bunch of slackers. Yeah. And honestly, what I'm seeing here is no different from any other ship we've ever watched in Star Trek. Yeah, exactly. And so her protocol of be like, oh, you got to, you've got everything's got to be timed, and you've got to be under a, under a clock, and you really can't be productive in any way when you're under that kind of time crunch. Be like some people, like Boimler, mm-hmm. yeah, he thrives under it. Yeah, everybody else, not so much. And Boimler makes a very good observation. Uh, when he's talking with the captain mm-hmm. about, be like, hey, everybody kind of works to their own kind of ebb and flow. And so... <laughs> I, well, I mean, I, at one point, Rutherford says he's got a 10 minutes to do a 30-minute diagnostic. Yeah. That's a little too... Cutting it a little too close. Yeah, just, just a little bit. It's... Uh, time management? What's that? <laughs> yeah. I mean, time... The fact that you've got this... Uh, time crunch placed on everybody is what caused the problem in this episode. Exactly. Because had that Bolian officer not been, you know, probably pulled in 30 different directions for that amount of time, he he probably would have grabbed the right case. (laughs) Instead of bringing a log, he would have brought the right crystal. Oh, that crapped me up because it's like, obviously be like there again, I am not a Trekkie. And admittedly, we have never heard, I've never, we've never heard of the race, the, the wooden totem came from, or yeah, this, that was hysterical. Or this uh, crystal race, yeah. But yeah, it's so. Speaking speaking of our uh, the crystal loving race that mm-hmm. we were introduced to it, <laughs> Mariner, 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 Mariner. The the idea that okay, you have your your uh, second command. Yeah, the first officer. Yeah, first officer. The first officer would be like they. They botch it, get into a semi-almost war with the Federation mm-hmm. just because you bring the wrong gift, and then it's be like the entire the entire team is captured, and the first officer and Merida go into a fight over who's going to battle them. Yeah, and uh, it's either ego versus I have experience doing these things mm-hmm. and. The I'm going to show my scars off situation kind of is, for me, reminiscent of Lethal Weapon 3. If you've, okay. never, if you've never seen that. I have not. Okay. It's basically where Riggs and uh, another character kind of show, start showing off their scars of you know the uh, their time in law enforcement. Mm-hmm. So that, to me, was kind of reminiscent of that for uh, Marina. I'm always going to say it wrong. Marina? Mar- Mariner. Mariner. Thank you. 
Mariner. And uh, the, the idea that now the first captain and a Mariner have kind of a thing going on. Maybe just yeah. a little bit. Yeah, just a just, little bit. Just a little bit. I thought that was interesting. And uh, the, the first officer stabs her in the foot. <laughs> yeah. Because it is his job. And he knows. That, that is true. It is his whether or not it should be his job, he is the leading, uh, he, he is the officer in charge of this mission. Yeah, I agree with you he on that. He is the commanding officer in, the, in charge of this mission, so he's the one who really should be the one fighting Vendor the, uh, in the trial by combat. Yes, in which apparently Vendor likes books. Apparently. <laughs> But uh, I, I just I like the fact that we're starting to see that there is a, a more of a side to Mariner than previous. Yeah. While she quote unquote gets off on breaking the rules, she is there's still some of that pro Starfleet person in her. I think. Yeah, a little bit. Because and you saw how she kind of was going kind of lovey dovey by uh, him saying, "I demand peaceful negotiations," while he punches somebody in the punches Vendor in the gut. She says, "Oh, so ethical." <laughs> Uh, uh, so uh, I think she, while she's not a rule follower herself, she no. might like people who do follow the rules. That's yeah. kind of why she's been hanging out with Boimler. Uh, that that would up make to sense. this point, and now maybe she's picking something up with her, uh, for, with the first officer of the ship, which is her mother's subordinate. Yeah. Which, considering the next time on uh, clip uh-huh. we saw at the end of this, I have a feeling. Um, is going to come back up. Yeah, sounds like it. Not going to go over very no, well. Uh, overall, this this was a good this was a good episode. Boimler getting his own role uh, named after him, which mm-hmm. he's like, this has nothing to do with me. It's about ru- about rules about not ma- not, not not following, following rules. rules. Yeah, just do just do what you feel is necessary to get the job done. And I'm like, okay. Well, I mean, <laughs> they did explain. The Boimler effect as being uh, yeah, in a very broad terms yeah they did. Um, I want to bring up the fact that yes, it sounds like it's a do whatever you want sort of rule. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. I don't think that's what if you actually were to read the rule that would be what it is. It is in my mind it is follow the rules as much as you can, but if there's a faster way to do it, do yeah, it. that's yeah that's. That's one of the thoughts brought to mind. Right, which is essentially what they were doing beforehand. Mm-hmm. The fact that it's called the Boimler effect, right. though, is not really what I would... <laughs> it's not normally the, what you would call a rule, but maybe a command philosophy? Yeah. In a sense? Because uh, earlier in there, he says, you're a great... He's saying this to Freeman during the end yeah. of it. He says, you're a great captain. Let them be a great crew. Yeah. In the essence, that's what it is. It's you can micromanage these people all you want, but unless you do let them do their job, yeah. Even if it seems to be uh, take longer than it should, there might be good reason for that. Yeah, they're not all robots. Boimler apparently is, but Boimler's a weirdo. Yeah. Anyway. Also, I do wonder if. Uh, this lack being a little bit more lax in rules, though, mm-hmm. might be what leads to the uh, incident on 
Utopia Planitia on Mars that would lead to uh, Picard. It depends on how much the rule extends past the Cerritos. Yeah, interesting. Just a little something to bring up. Maybe Boimler is on command of that at that point. No, I don't think he's in command, but the idea that this rule might work its way through the Federation about this is how things we really should be doing so that when you get to uh, the first contact day massacre on Utopia Planitia, Mm-hmm. In what uh, we first see in Children of Mars, what we get to see the full effects of later on in Picard, uh, since they were kind of very lax in that scene where they were showing that, mm-hmm. I'm wondering if that has taken into effect and is what caused so much of the laxness that would allow. And I tr- I'm trying not to spoil what what the mystery of what was going on in that show. Yeah. My apologies, but essentially allowed the Romulans to get a foothold in, uh, before, you know, their son blew up for Star Trek 2009. Mm. That's my thought there. It's a, it's a fan theory. I don't know if it'll ever get proven, but I'm putting it out there in case it ever comes up. I gotcha. So, uh, we got anything else to add before we, uh, in this thing not that I know of uh, it's a good episode it makes you laugh mm-hmm. I think it's one of the the key objectives of the show it makes you laugh kind of makes you question a few things but uh, overall I enjoyed it I can't wait for episode 4 I'm, I'm finding myself getting hooked more and more with this this uh, mm-hmm. this series because it is so it such a departure from Star Trek and yet it's, it's kind of not. Yeah, in the, in the same in the same way, it is it is Star Trek, but the same way it's it's kind of okay. We're gonna take all the Star Trek lore and run with it, and at the same time give this this uh, silly, goofy, mm-hmm. off the wall zaniness to it. Yeah, I think one of the things you do have to remember when you're watching this show is. Uh, this is an exaggeration of probably what happens mm-hmm. on this ship. Uh, I wouldn't. While I would say the events that occur on this show are in lore, I'm not thinking the way they were told precisely are what's in lore. Right. Because this is an exaggeration. It really feels like we are watching a 24th century sitcom that happens to be based on a true story. Yeah. Even though for us it's all you know fake. You know what I mean? Yeah. I expect this to be like a holodeck scenario sort of a thing. Holodeck, hollow novel, but happens to be based on a true story. And Mariner is the player character or whomever that's kind of making things go awry. Because right. that's just who she is. Yeah. I don't know. I'm just kind of guessing here. So, yeah. Uh, if, that's the, if that's all we've got. That's it. Join us next week for our review of episode four, Moist Vessels. Boy. Come, Jacob. We must prepare for next week. Prepare for what, Drew? Same thing we do every week, Jacob. Record a podcast! Oh, boy! So where can they find you, Jacob? They can find me on Facebook at Jacob B. Heron and Jacob's Daily Art Corner, my personal art Facebook page. On Twitter at Jacob B. Heron. On Instagram at Jacob B. Heron. And on Letterboxd at Jacob Heron. 
where can they find you, Drew? Uh, you can find me on Facebook at Drew Dodgen. You can also find my Facebook page at Drew's Photo Bin, where I upload uh, my photography. You can also follow me on Letterboxd at GGeorge759 and Twitter at GGeorge759. Where can they find us, Jacob? You can also visit our website, thecellcast.podbean.com, where you will find every episode we released and links to listen to it on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. Our RSS feed, if we aren't in your favorite podcast app directory, please share, review, and subscribe to us there and share us with your friends. You will also find a link to our Facebook group, the Double Feature Podcast Community, where we talk about both animated and live-action movies. We share this with our other podcasts, which we do with Jacob's brother Jim, at uh, the Movie of the Week podcast, where we talk about live-action movies. You can also email us at thecellcastpodcasts at gmail.com. Also, please like our page on Facebook. We try to post about upcoming movies. If you comment on that movie's post before we record, we'll read your comments in the episode. And remember, every time we say The Cellcast, that is with a single L. L.